Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Celia Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Thea. What is your daffodil count this week? Uh, I've had a few people ask me this. I think everyone is it must be quite concerned about, <laughs> about me, but um, I'm happy to report that the daffodils are, are fine. They're numerous. They are more numerous than last week, in fact, which you would hope, um, except a few collapsed over the pathway and they were they were at risk of being trampled by Alf the dog so I've saved those and they are now nicely cut and propped up in a small vase to my left as we record so they have a nice mental image of my of my setup as well. Very poetic. <laughs> Isn't it just? Um, tell me about you what have you been up to what have you been reading? Well this weekend um, I've been reading Kazuo Ishiguro's new book Clara and the Sun of which more later. Ah okay so we won't talk about that then. We'll move swiftly on uh, and I will tell listeners what we have coming up on this week's show. We have two new translations of the epic poem Beowulf, which take us back to the rich and troubling ambiguities of the original. We'll hear from the medievalist Hetta Howes. And we have a poem by Vladimir Nabokov to discuss. The Man of Tomorrow's Lament, written in June 1942 and published for the first time in this week's TLS. But first, Lucy, it's back to you because you're going to start us off this week. Literary events don't make the news very often, except perhaps if there's a scandal or controversy involved. But this week, a writer is publishing his eighth novel and it has been all over the headlines. Maybe because the writer is Kazuo Ishiguro and because this is his first book since he won the Nobel Prize. Edmund Gordon has reviewed it for us and is here to discuss it. And don't worry, we will do our best to make this a spoiler-free zone. Edmund, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, first, I'm going to start with a horrible question, which I often do. Could you just sketch us an idea of the world of this novel and its protagonists, please? Yes, I can. I mean, you said we're going to have a spoiler-free uh, conversation, and I will certainly try to do that. But it's a very difficult novel to discuss without spoilers, because... More and more of the world is revealed as it um, progresses. It's narrated by a robot who begins called Clara, who uh, begins the story unsold in a shop and understands basically nothing about the world she lives in. And she's subsequently purchased by a 14-year-old girl called Josie and taken home with her. And she starts to piece together how her world works and it's only as she does that we are able to understand anything about it so if I say anything more than I've already said which I will I'll say a little bit more but I'm already putting the listener in a different position when they come to the novel than I was in when I read it so switch off now if you don't want to hear anything <laughs> but she so I, sh I shouldn't say that I shouldn't say that but she um she gradually comes to understand that robots like her I mean, it's it's set in the near future in what seems to be America. 
and that advances in automation and artificial intelligence have led to a complete restructuring of society, basically, and especially a restructuring of the world of work. And most members of what are referred to in the novel as the former professional classes have been made redundant and have sort of left the cities where they lived and moved to these kind of alternative communities. And in addition to that, uh, children, certainly sort of privileged children, such as Josie, are what's called lifted in the novel, which means genetically edited, genetically manipulated to give them some chance of obtaining one of the few remaining jobs. And there are various other twists and revelations as it progresses, which I won't reveal. Um, But even what I've said already sort of only comes into focus quite slowly as you're reading. But that is also, I mean, gently futuristic as it is, it is also fundamentally our world, isn't it? Because, I mean, I've just been reading a a long piece um, about university admissions and the world that you've just described is just extremely recognisable. It's a world in which parents worry about how best to equip their children for a precarious, competitive future. And some have privileges that others don't. So there's a line in your piece where you say at different points, they put their faith in education, technology or human nature, all of those things eminently true now. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, certainly the sort of the broad landscape of inequality and uncertainty about what the near future holds is something we can all recognise. And the kind of emotional world of the novel is very recognisable. But there are things about this world, partly because it is narrated by Clara, this robot who, whose perspective is, you know, it's a sort of It's a very odd perspective because she's not a human and her perspective is in some respects fundamentally alien, fundamentally non-human. And having her introduce us to this world does make it feel like a very strange and different world to the one that we live in. Yeah, you say um, in your review that it is sometimes hard to form certainly a clear picture of what's happening, even in quite a literal way, because the story is narrated very much from Clara's point of view. So you see, you literally see how she sees because the way that she, well, you can explain how how she visualises things. Yeah, well, there's lots of odd sort of optical effects almost in the novel where Clara, I think even when her vision, it's not 100% clear, I have to say, but I think that even when her vision is operating as it usually does, she visualises things in quite a different way to us. So, for example, she seems completely unable to distinguish between different specimens of the same type. So if she encounters two sets of red shelves or two of the same brand of machine, she will think that they are literally the same one as one another. But then sometimes, and this seems to be to do with a sort of uh, processing error, it seems to be at moments of heightened emotional activity her vision kind of fragments and breaks up into a series of separate panels or boxes which don't I described it in the piece as being like a poorly assembled jigsaw puzzle so you'll have different parts of the picture which which sort of belong together spread across her visual plane you know when you uh, uh you have to sign into something and you have to do I'm not a robot and <laughs> yes. you have the boxes with different things in that's what it made me think of well yeah it's sort of like that except there the the boxes do form a coherent picture they haven't been scrambled they're just kind of separated from one another aren't they I can't quite visualize one of those but yeah maybe that is that's where he took it from but it does mean that that you're sort of the mental track that you have of what's going on is sometimes quite fuzzy and beyond that I think there are things that Clara doesn't understand that therefore we can't really understand that are just sort of permanently obscure to us you know there are are scenes that she sees that she doesn't know how to interpret or that she obviously misinterprets and there's no key available I think to us to sort of work out what's really going on behind that. Yes, which I quite like because it's not it's not spelled out for you. You've really just got to think about it and it's not always clear, but it it does seem surprising because on one hand she's a very very sophisticated like extremely sophisticated AI and on the other hand you think well there's a lot about the world that she doesn't know but maybe then the idea is that they've done that on purpose because she's supposed to be a companion for a child, isn't she? And there is a kind of childlike element 
to the whole thing. I read um, that Ishiguro said it originally started as a story for his yeah. daughter when she was young, and he showed it to his wife, and his wife said, there's <laughs> no way you are publishing that as a children's book. It's far, it's far too bleak. I read that as well, and I suppose there is a kind of, I mean, there's a, there's a the, the mood of the novel is quite optimistic, basically, I think, in spite of the darkness of the world. And I suppose that might be what's been carried over from that original iteration. But yeah, it doesn't seem like a children's book to me. Um, can I just ask a question about um, the language? Um, some of the, the the parts that you quote in your in your review are because they're narrated by Clara. They're they're a very simple um, sort of estranged language. She says exactly what she sees with no further attachments. I'm just wondering whether the language grows more complex as the protagonist's knowledge or data store or experience or whatever, as that evolves. If not, I'm just wondering whether it might, whether I might get a bit tired of it almost. You know how in Portrait of an Artist, if Joyce had sustained the child speak of that famous first line about a moo cow coming down along the road, whether the, the reader might start to feel wearied? Well, I think the answer to that's a, a bit complicated because n no, it doesn't become more complex, the language. I mean, um, the palette that he uses for describing things remains very um, stripped down throughout. I actually found it more engaging as it went on the novel, though, and I think that's because more about the human characters and their world becomes clear to us, even if it doesn't always become clear to Clara so there, there is more to engage you as it goes on you're sort of drawn more and more into the emotional world of the characters even as her perspective remains quite distant and quite simplified you sort of switch into a different mode I suppose after a while yeah I mean I think to some extent that's true with all of his novels I mean he's a, a writer who doesn't have a sort of vast you know practical vocabulary that he brings to use he's not a great describer of things I mean I really feel that his sort of the writers who he is most similar to are kind of Kafka and Chekhov, um, neither of whom you go to for the richness of their verbal palette. I mean, one of them has an almost sort of grey um, descriptive prose, Chekhov, and the other, Kafka, has a very bureaucratic sort of register. And I think Ishiguro has taken that from them and is more interested in the emotions that can be conveyed in quite bland writing a lot of the time. Now, when you say that Clara is uh, has got a, a more distant perspective, but did you not feel that she becomes more engaged and learns more? We're being we're told um, often that she's a particularly perceptive AI; that she's particularly good at that. Yeah, we're told that often, but that seems to me like a sort of misdirection or uh, or signposting that we're supposed to start wondering whether she is because she certainly gets a lot of stuff wrong about what's happening and she often you know although she will take interest in a given subject or, or relationship between people she'll kind of get the wrong end of the stick about it so I think she's certainly curious that's a word that I would apply to her but I think whether she's observant or perceptive I mean observant I don't know if it's deliberate that there's that word used about her when we know from her own descriptions that her optical field is sort of all over the place. She often is completely incapable of observing things in a reliable manner. And so there's, there's various ways that we think about the the AI. She's called an AF, an artificial friend, isn't mm. she? But if it, let's say uh, I'm in a humanless future and I'm an AI and I'm reading this for reference to find out about humans, I'm fine with the AI stuff. I've got that. How do you think I would think about the humans in it? I mean, <laughs> I think that they, um, the human characters, there's a lot of love in this novel. Um, most of them are acting out of love for other characters within the novel sometimes there's Clara sort of sees them all as lonely but again I'm not sure that we're supposed to take that as literal I think that they have hope and that they sort of power themselves with their hope for the future and quite often that comes to nothing but I think that they're on certainly the main characters there are sort of four central human characters and I think that they're all likable characters uh, there are some less likable figures in the background i have to say though speaking as a as an ai against the humans <laughs> they did they, they make some pretty questionable decisions and also there is the question of of how clara is treated i mean 
towards the end of the novel, and I don't, I, I, you know, it's hard to discuss this without spoilers, but certainly their treatment of her is does seem slightly callous. And yet it is hard to tell the extent to which she is intended to be a, you know, sort of character fully equipped with emotional responses. But there's a point in the book when she says, isn't she, I, 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 I think I have feelings. Yeah. I, I, I'm having feelings about this. Yeah, there is, absolutely. I mean, I don't know, maybe this is just human chauvinism on my part, but I certainly found the relations between the human characters much more moving than I did Clara's own trajectory during it. And I more or less viewed her as a kind of a window onto the human characters. I think I must actually have an element of AI in me because I felt very much for her. I've <laughs> often suspected that. Sorry. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, I think... I think, I think that this has been the standard interpretation. I've been slightly baffled reading some of the coverage. Uh, I mean, nearly as baffled as I was by the novel itself, because people seem to read it as a an allegory almost, where she stands for human beings and for the partial understanding of human beings, which really wasn't my reading of it. You know, I thought this is a novel full of human characters. We don't need a human stand-in within it yeah um, I, no I know what you mean I didn't think she was supposed to be a stand-in I thought she was supposed to be an AI because it's interesting the way people react to to, to AIs as well um is it of a piece with his other work do you think you were referring back to a couple of his earlier novels I think in some respects it certainly is I mean I think that the voice and the sort of um partial narrator who doesn't fully understand things is certainly of a piece and I think that Hope plays a great part in this novel, as it does in all of his previous books, although I would say a slightly different role. I think in in the previous novels, it's often looked like a form of denial. It's looked like a way of um, avoiding reality, whereas here it seems much more like a, you know, the only way these characters can cope with reality, that they can actually sort of get through their days and and move forwards. So, yeah, I think it is. I mean, it's got... it's got things in common with Never Let Me Go, certainly. Um, the kind of uh, sci-fi premise, which, you know, I don't think of him really as a sci-fi writer. I think as sci-fi, it doesn't fully work. I mean, all of the details, you you said earlier that she seems to have a limited understanding in some respects and an advanced understanding in the other. I don't feel that he works through all of those loose ends in the way that a, a typical sci-fi writer would. But it certainly has those elements in common with Never Let Me Go. I also felt that it had things in common with two earlier books, When We Were Orphans and The Unconsoled. Because in those, I mean, they have sort of unreliable narrators, but the traditional kind of unreliable narrator, there's something internal to the novel against which we can check the narrator's unreliability. We, we notice, you know, in The Remains of the Day, that's a much more traditional unreliable narrator where Stevens will overhear people talking or he'll overhear Miss Kenton crying and we start to work out the precise ways in which his account is um, insufficient. Whereas in The Unconsoled, When We Were Orphans and Clara and the Sun, there's often nothing against which we can check the narrator's perceptions. And that seems to me quite an innovative way of using an unreliable narrator. And it has that in common, certainly. Yes, I thought that actually. In fact, the more I think about it, the stranger it becomes, even though it might seem Mm. reasonably simple on the face of it, but actually it's not simple at all. I think even on the face of it, I mean, it's, it's a novel which is about a robot who spends pages at a time talking to the sun. I mean, I think it's quite a weird novel. <laughs> Definitely normal. Even in summary. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But also there's another way I, that struck, it doesn't do the expected thing. There's a story arc that could happen, mm. a sort of Chekhov's gun that then just doesn't. I mean, he's not... He's not sort of bothered about fulfilling any expectations we might have, is he? Well, I th- I think he must be deliberately undermining certain un- expectations because I had the same experience and I was really thrown. I thought I understood what kind of novel I was reading and I was really thrown by the last sort of 40 pages or so. And I do feel when I said I'm baffled by some of the coverage, they've reviewed the novel I thought I was reading until the last 40 pages. But I think that those put it in, into an entirely different light. And I had to spend quite a lot of time thinking about it and trying to work out what he was doing, what the novel was about. I mean, it, it's only because he is such a great writer and he's someone whose previous novels I've um, been haunted by. 
that I sort of you know, gave him the benefit of the doubt and did spend the time thinking. But I do think he's doing something quite interesting and quite original with it. And do you think it is, I mean, you touched on this earlier, do you think it does display anxiety about the future? It seems, it doesn't look as though it's a central concern, but actually society and the class system and economics, it's, it's all pretty dysfunctional, isn't it? It's not a rosy picture of the future, certainly. I mean, in terms of society, in societal terms, it's it's fairly dystopian. I mean, it's, um, as Thea said, it's it, a lot of the facets of social inequality etc are things that we live with already but they've been exaggerated uh in this world and it doesn't seem like an attractive place to live but the human characters you know they make their lives work and i think that it does it is kind of hopeful in that respect it's sort of i suppose in in so far as there's a, a message about what the future is going to be like it seems to be we will get through it Yes, and even the the people that you worry about, which again, it seemed to be clearly signposted that then some terrible stuff might happen to them. There's a couple of them actually in different situations. This sort of human ingenuity and hope, I suppose, finds a way through, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a you know the 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 overall tone of the novel is one of kind of optimism and tenderness and and love I think I was going to ask you about that because he uh, reading about him again he said he's often been surprised at the reception of his books because he didn't think that never let me go was very bleak he was very (laughs) surprised when everyone said oh my gosh (laughs) he's like oh I thought that one was pretty nice and tender it was supposed to be another child's book presumably (laughs) (laughs) imagine is he trolling us I just don't know I mean he's (laughs) Yeah, it didn't seem to me like a cheery story, Never Let Me Go. This does seem to me, I don't know, cheerier in tone, at least, if not in kind of content all the time. But, I mean, it's hard to know when writers talk about their books. It's hard to know the extent to which we should take them seriously sometimes. Excellent general rules going out here. It's the case for most people that their books are cleverer than they are. So I think we shouldn't necessarily (laughs) listen to an author's... Uh, what they have to say about how their book should be interpreted. Okay, well, that's bold talk. (laughs) All right, okay, we're just going to discount everything they say. It's a good rule for us to have. (laughs) Uh, Edmund, many thanks for talking to us. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. Cheers, bye. Still to come on the show, Hetta Howes gets her teeth into two quite different translations of Beowulf and a never-before-published poem by Vladimir Nabokov, inspired by his eight-year-old son's favourite comic. And if you have enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, this is a gentle reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. I quite like Ansible. The term was coined by Ursula Le Guin to describe a fictional device, um, which is used in quite a few of her texts, that sends and receives messages over any distance instantaneously, which kind of allows for communicational time travel without needing warp speed, which is also in the dictionary. And that's gone on to be used by a lot of other science fiction authors as a specific object. So it's not even just a word, it's a specific device um, that hasn't been invented, but is very prevalent now in science fiction. Probably being invented somewhere at this very moment. This woman, Isabella Jones, clearly is the Mrs Jones of Keats's letters. And indeed, there's a rather beautiful letter she writes to Taylor, Keats's publisher, after Keats's death. So there's no doubt that Isabella Jones, Mrs. Jones, as they keep calling her. No doubt that she is the woman. But who she was, how old she was, what her background was, what she was doing, living alone in these rooms in Queen Square, nobody could quite work out. And if I could find the identity of Mrs. Jones, that would really be something. Napoleon's wife, Josephine, was a Mason before she met him and continued to be involved in that. I was reading about um, research being done in her 
letters. Sometimes she signs them with the parallel lines and, and that are considered to be signs of Masonic membership. They're sort of the written equivalent of the secret handshake type thing. Exactly. And you say Frances McDormand's, her, her performance, she's amazing. She's amazing. And what I loved about her was that um, she's obviously, obviously a very humble, intuitive and intelligent actor. And she doesn't draw your attention. Your attention draws to her because she is so compelling. But she moves uh, around them as if she's one of them. And when I was watching it at first, it was almost as if the extras had taken over the film because she was the outsider to their story. Do you think this will be one that might win awards? I think so. I, I think both the director, the cinematographer and Francis McDermott, I think they will be strong contenders for the Oscars. I did read somewhere, though, that um, Francis McDermott is so down to earth that she probably will turn up to the Oscars wearing her Crocs. <laughs> But if she does win the Oscar, I shall be uh, raising my glass to her because I think it's a fantastic performance. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we come to two valiant new translations of Beowulf, it is not often that we, or indeed anyone, get to say that we have a previously unpublished poem by Vladimir Nabokov to share with you. The poem, written a couple of years after his arrival in the United States in May 1940, is entitled The Man of Tomorrow's Lament. And it is, in the words of our writer Andrei Babikov, who introduces it in an accompanying piece, a monologue in the voice of his sinewy muse, a comic book hero, that is Superman, whose popularity had been growing since 1938. And Lucy, this is a case of the New Yorker's loss is our gain, really, isn't it? It was an 80-year uh, lag. Yeah, it's it's the sort of pitch that you would dream of getting <laughs> <laughs> because he, Nabokov wrote in, didn't he, to the New Yorker in 1942, I think, was it? And said, I've got this poem written in English, which he, he he hasn't been used to writing in. Is there anything you can do with it, basically? Though, of course, it being Nabokov, it's incredibly elegantly worded 
um, pitch. Exactly. And on, on that point of the language, he says, I should like to repeat that I experience most horrible difficulties and distress and wield la- wielding a language new to me after 25 years of good old Russian. <laughs> yeah, he sounds like he's doing pretty well in his new language. He really does. And uh, he also brilliantly says, might I humbly request an honorarium as adequate as possible to my Russian past and my present agonies? Which if somebody wrote that to me, I'd be inclined to go, I'm sure, I'm sure we can come to some arrangement. <laughs> Actually, no, we can't do that. Nobody should write that to us. Um, yeah, so essentially he's written a very elegant pitch and sent this, um, this very enjoyable poem about Superman. Basically, as far as we can tell, because his his eight year old son had been reading Superman and he'd been he'd been reading it with exactly. Him. And perhaps perhaps it, the uh, the um, uh, Andrei Babikov, who's written who's written the accompanying piece, as I say, he says perhaps this is the world's first poem about Superman. Yes, maybe. And uh, and uh, but then the New Yorker, um, even Homer nods, and New Yorker said no thanks. So nobody's seen it for, um, yes, as you say, nearly 80 years. And it's it's quite a sort of a, a categorical rejection, really. So he writes in, Nabokov writes to uh, the poetry editor at the time, uh, Charles Pierce, and the, the reply comes, it was very kind of you to respond to my plea so promptly, uh, which evidently they must have asked for Nabokov, who was, of course, by now already quite famous, uh, a famous writer in Europe. And so Charles Pierce says, and that makes it doubly difficult for me to have to tell you that the man of tomorrow's lament has been turned down. Most of us appear to feel that many of our readers wouldn't quite get it. And then, too, there is the problem you foresaw about the lines in the middle of the poem. And those lines are, uh, shall we say, quite risque. Yes. And I think probably especially for 1942, it's just, it's a, a lament of unrequited love, isn't it? Or maybe it's even requited, I guess, because it's Lois Lane. But um, the rhythm of it is, of course, brilliant. And there's a line about Superman flying red cloaked, blue hosed across the yellow sky. And this refers to um, a particular cover, I think, isn't it? It's a particular edition of Superman. Yeah, it's all, it's very specific, isn't it? And that's one of the things that Babikov points out. He says one of the things that makes this poem so special is that it is, it's one of the only pieces where we are in absolutely no doubt about the source of the work, because Nabokov could be quite tricksy about that sort of thing. But here, Babikov says, uh, the place of action is a city park. The characters are Clark Kent and Lois Lane. The details are, are, are concrete, you know, glasses, uh, a bronze statue. And the words that Lois speaks in the poem are word for word taken from the cover of uh, Superman number 16, which he, this is just a lovely insight now into Nabokov's life newly restarted in America. So his son was obsessed with Superman and he would buy his son the Superman comics. And so um, his his son was an eight-year-old at the time. And so on August 3rd, 1942, Nabokov writes to his wife, Vera, and he says, he played ball marvelously today, spread five butterflies and signed the labels himself, built a new house with Marisha, bought a new Superman, which I read to him at bedtime. He eats lots and falls straight to sleep. I read Gogol's The Nose to him. He laughed a lot, but he prefers Superman. <laughs> Brilliant. I love that. Quite right, too. He's eight. <laughs> Imagine he preferred <laughs> Gogol to Superman. That would be impressive. But all those details that you quoted of, of, of you know, the yellow sky and uh, the colour of his cloak and, and all of that sort of stuff is all taken from this number 16 uh, issue of, of of the Superman comic. Which perhaps after this will quadruple in value more than... Uh, so if you do have a copy of Superman number 16 at home, hang on to it <laughs> <laughs> because it's probably very valuable. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. And it's just this this moment in history where Nabokov has just been dropped straight into American culture. He's been fully drenched in it. Yes, um, and dealt with it brilliantly, of course. I heard there's an, another, um, the latest update that I had read yesterday was that the next Superman film, because they've rather languished the um, Superman films. I don't know so much about the comics, but the next Superman film, I think, is going to be written by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Oh, wow. So that will be exciting. Yeah. Well, I'm sure Nabokov would be thrilled. <laughs> um, we'll end there then um, by saying that a shorter version of Andrei Babikov's commentary on the poem uh, appears in this week's paper edition of the TLS, translated from Russian by Stephen H. Blackwell. And an extended version of that commentary is available on the TLS website and in the app edition of the paper. The poem itself 
appears in all those places too and is of course if we have not made this sufficiently clear well worth seeking out but now to Beowulf that most translated of all old English poems first committed to the page some 1000 years ago and since tackled by writers including William Morris Edwin Morgan Seamus Heaney Borges and Tolkien not one notes very many women among them a point we will no doubt come back to now, two new translations have prompted a review this week by Hetta Howes, a lecturer in medieval and early modern literature at City University of London. The first of these is by Maria Devana Headley, and the second, in blank verse, is by Richard Hammer. Hetta joins us on the line now to fill us in. Hetta, it's good to have you here. Hi, thank you for having me. Famously, the translator facing this text has to make a bold defining decision from the very first word. So what is that first challenge? Yeah, so that's kind of, I imagine, what most translators will spend the most time on. And it's not a short poem. And that first word is quats, which is Old English for all kinds of different things. It's, you know, there's all kinds of ways you could translate that. It's a convention to start a lot of Old English poetry with that word. Um, and it essentially is a word that sort of says, OK, listen up. So different ways of translating it might be listen, low has been one use that I don't particularly like here, so um well any kind of sort of uh, dialectic marker that a story is about to begin it's time to sit up and listen so how a translator handles that word I think tells us quite a lot about what's coming exactly completely sets the tone for everything else that follows so how does how does Headley kick things off then Headley's is my favorite ever um and hers is bro um, which is a really bold choice. And I think it tells us from the start of that translation that she's taking no prisoners with her translation and she's making first choices and it's going to work. Bro is 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 sort of the, the best way I can imagine to start such a macho poem. It's bro with an exclamation mark, isn't it? It's not like bro, listen, it's like bro. <laughs> yes. This is what's going on. It makes it sound a bit like point break from the beginning. Absolutely. And it puts, I think, in our head exactly the kind of person that might speak to another bro like that, like bro at the pub. I have to say, when I was reading this translation, you know, bearing in mind pubs have been closed on and off for a long time now, I was like, oh, it really made me think of being in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's sort—I mean, this this choice, bro. It sort of flies in the face of of well, of tradition, but of Tolkien as well. Because didn't he sort of counsel specifically counsel against uh, colloquialisms? Yes, Tolkien's opinion was that you know um, translations should, should almost be quite archaic because the diction of the original poem um, is quite a high register, so it's quite elevated. And so Tolkien argued that you know translators should be sensitive to that. Whereas Headley is doing almost the exact opposite. It brings it right into the sort of modern world. It's, it's sort of a word that might not mean anything in 10 or 20 years or might not have the same resonance. But I think that's why it works so well. You know, Beowulf is very much a poem of its moment and Headley's making it a poem of our moment as well. And it, it also acknowledges, um, as, you, as you touched on before, doesn't it, that, that this, this has been, is, uh, and has been a very male poem. Looking back over a list of... of previous English translations alone there, there are very few women's names there there's um, I saw Mary Waterhouse in 1949 Megan Purvis in 2013 but it is this is a, a poem about men for men written by a man yes and I think that's why it was sort of high time for a, a woman to translate it because actually whilst it is very much you know I'm not going to try and make the case today that, that it's really a woman's poem it's, it's not but there are more interesting sort of ideas about women in there than we've perhaps seen traditionally because of critical interest has often been historically from men translate, translated by men historically or, or more popularly by men so and I think there's something about the culture of the poem. It's a warrior culture. Most of the characters are male. There's a lot of kind of exploration of what it means to be a good hero or a good king, both of which in the context of the time would have meant to be a man, what makes a good man. So I think it has, you know, I, I teach Beowulf and, and one of the challenges is sort of getting my largely sort of female student body to see that it's a poem that might have interest for them as well. Well, they've always got the opportunity to pour the drinks, which is what people, the <laughs> ladies seem, to, <laughs> yeah. seem to do mostly in Beowulf, as far as I can tell. Yes. In fact, um, you know, their, their role is very much to kind of keep the peace and serve the drinks. Yeah. You know, Whale Theo is, is one of the only women in it. 
sort of wife of Hrothgar and she sort of is, you know, she needs to look pretty and make sure everyone's wine cup is full. Um, and I actually, a student in a presentation just last week said, well, it seems that, that largely women are sort of about service in this poem. And I was like, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think Headley manages in her translation to make those issues come to the surface so we can interrogate them rather than just sort of presenting them as, as oh, this is what women are. She kind of is quite tongue in cheek about it and, and quite playful about that kind of role assigned to women in the poem. Um, and this picks up on Headley's previous work, doesn't it? The um, the mere wife from from 2018. That was a modern day uh, retelling rather than than translation of Beowulf. And it was it was from the perspective of Grendel's mother. Yes. And if anyone listening has not read it, please read it immediately and then read Headley's translation. The Mere Wife is an astonishing book. Um, and as you say, it's a feminist adaptation retelling. Um, and, and it's sort of key themes are sort of motherhood and sort of um, what it means to be a woman, but also toxic masculinity and some fairly big themes as well. Colonization, gentrification, politics you know it covers quite a lot of ground but I read The Mere Wife a couple of years ago and I was so excited by it um, and sort of the way it engaged with the poem in a way I hadn't really seen before and so when I heard that Headley was also translating Beowulf I was like okay this is going to be good and I was quite nervous to read it in case it wasn't and it was so good <laughs> it was so good and one of the things that she circles back to again and again then uh, in both books it seems is 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 the double standard really and this is something that I think has been touched on before in in terms of Beowulf. It's sort of been wrangled with and smoothed out over time. But basically, how if if a man chops off a rival's head, he's a he's a warrior hero. Whereas if a woman does it, she's a monster, a dragon. Yeah, there's a wonderful kind of parallel parallelism in the poem, which is kind of under the surface, but I think is is very much present in the original. A kind of ambivalence about how we treat outsiders. So you've got you know, those within Hrothgar's hall, the sort of main warriors who are celebrated for wreaking havoc, causing a lot of death, you know, brawling, fighting, wars. And then when it's outsiders, whether that's Grendel, the sort of male monster, or more interestingly for me as mother, um, that's perceived in a completely different way. So as you say, there's sort of a moment where Grendel's mum puts the head of a warrior outside her mirror because her son's been killed and she's avenging him, which is exactly what, according to the culture, she should do. But in the poem, there's a sense of, oh, you know, how could she do this terrible thing? What a monstrous person. So I think the poem is inviting us quite subtly to sort of think about those inconsistencies, how we perceive other people, who's inside, who's outside. And that's something that Headley certainly seems engaged with in her translation, bringing those sort of double standards to the surface, whether that's double standards of gender or just double standards of who happens to be in the club and who doesn't happen to be in the club. Can I ask in, in terms of that ambiguity, and I'm not sure if I've understood this right, is it right that there is that, that same one word that can be glossed as a, it's, or sometimes used as warrior when it's talking about Beowulf, but then monster when it's talking about Grendel or the dragon, and it's the same word, is that right? Yes, and this is something that kind of got more attention, started to be paid to it, from the 80s onwards with the sort of rise of second wave feminism actually and more critics started paying attention to the language and how particularly Grendel's mum was translated but there's this this word agleka which in old English can mean um sort of warrior or hero but could also mean monster or wretch and interestingly in some editions famously Friedrich Kleber's edition which is still very influential today whenever the word agleka is used, if it's used in reference to Beowulf or another male hero, he glosses that word as warrior. But when it's used for Grendel or Grendel's mum, it's glossed as monster or wretch. And there's nothing about that word that would sort of invite us to categorise that much in the original. It can mean both. And context, of course, is important. But I think additions which don't nod to that ambiguity are losing something from the original poem and certainly translations as well that, that don't nod to that ambiguity because part of the sort of wonder of the poem is you, you don't ever quite know where you stand. And, and yes, Beowulf is portrayed as a great hero, but he's also a bit superhuman and, you know, it's sort of interested in the lines between humanity and monstrosity. So the treatment of that word has historically been quite revealing about sort of 
our attitudes to the poem, particularly with this tradition of sort of male editors and translators, I think. And so, I mean, how does all this compare then when we, when you get to Richard Hymer's version of the poem? Uh, maybe let's start with the first word and then work through to, to the words that we've just been talking about. So his version, he starts, so where Headley chooses bro, he, he chooses um, here, which is a very defensible choice, um, a, a less bold one, but I think um, quite neutral. And I would say that that's something that definitely defines his translation is it, it's sort of quite calm, it's quite neutral, a little bit nostalgic. And I, I really enjoyed reading it. I think it's got some really beautiful um, verse in it. It's written in blank verse. Um, it sort of almost made me think of sort of the waves lapping on the shore. But there were a few disappointing moments for me. And one of them was was sort of the treatment of the monsters. So he sort of notes in his acknowledgements how indebted he is to Friedrich Kleber. And I think that's quite clear. So it quite often, you know, monsters are monsters in his uh, translation and humans are humans and that's just for me my personal interest so I kind of wanted a little bit more of the ambiguity to come through than it did. Um, and it's, it's, I mean speaking much more generally then and, and we'll come back to the translation specifically but is there the original listeners were they likely to be better than accommodating ambiguities because it's a sort of crossroads text isn't it between different traditions and, and value systems, pagan or Christian, for instance, and, and whether it's precisely that tension that, that makes the whole thing so captivating and, and generative for, and in so many different directions for, for, for these two translators. Yeah, I like to think that perhaps they were better at accommodating the ambiguity. I think certainly the sort of translation and editorial history of Beowulf shows for a long time, a sort of impulse to kind of have things in quite neat boxes that the poem doesn't really do for me. And of course, it's hard to say, you know, it's, it's such an early poem, it's one of the earliest um, texts we have, you know, committed to the page in, in Old English. We know a fair bit about the history of the time, but not as much as we'd like. But it does feel reading what's left of Old English literature, like there's a lot more sort of sense of ambiguity of not quite knowing where you are in the world a sort of um, a sense of nature as a very big and often indifferent kind of space you know as you mentioned this is a poem that engages with both pagan and christian ideas and sort of seems to oscillate between the two um, and i do wonder what it says about sort of our time as much as sort of their time you know that that we want to be able to say okay this character's like this and this character's like that and then, you know, you get a translator or ad adapter like Headley coming along and saying, no, that's what's interesting, though, about the original is that it won't let us make those kinds of choices as easily as we think. And it's interesting, isn't it, how um, if we're looking at Hamer's translation, it, it's, it, it professes itself to be, you know, striving for a kind of neutrality. But just in terms of the, 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 the choices that it makes, it, it very quickly is not neutral at all. Yes, and I think I was quite surprised by that because for most for the most part, it does feel like it's trying really hard to be close to the original. He sort of says in, in his introduction that he wanted clarity and then closeness to the original. And a lot of the time that's definitely achieved. It's definitely a very worthwhile addition to the canon, I would say. But it's interesting that we keep stumbling over this sort of image of Grendel's mum. What is it about Grendel's mum that makes us want to kind of put her in a in a more confined box because one of the choices that he makes is to translate the word fingrim which is sort of fingers into claws and so many other translators have made that choice he's not the first but I, I had hopes that we might have got past <laughs> sort of simplifying in that way but perhaps it's it's truer to the original in terms of um the rhythm of the language is it I mean I'm just thinking about that that opening uh line where he says here we have heard the stories of the mighty kings does that sort of echo the patterns of of the original old English and in, in the repetition of hear and hearing. Yes, I think um, in terms of sort of poetic diction, he, he doesn't quite pleasingly doesn't go for the archaisms. I think one thing that's quite similar about both these translations is that they sort of shed that kind of convention of archaisms. But his translation, it feels kind of more akin to what the old English would sound like in terms of the sort of lulling meter the sort of echoes across lines and internal rhymes. It's interesting that he chooses blank verse as well, which he says he chooses it because it's the most neutral verse form he can think of. And it really is a very accessible read. I was sort of struck by so many Beowulf translations. You sort of get a bit stuck or you feel sort of having to read over passages. And, and there's something very clear about, about his and also very poetic. Whereas I think Headley goes more for the sort of, you know, it's not necessarily old English verse 
that she's trying to create, but kind of much more modern verse with the old English theme. Did you have a clear favourite already when you came to them? Has that favourite been challenged by either of these? Maybe this is maybe a different question, but which one would you recommend to uh, to anyone who has yet to discover it? Oh, two really good questions. I think in terms of the first one, Heaney would would have been the one I chose before. I've always liked Seamus Heaney's translation. I don't, uh, you know, there's bits I, I like less, but I think um, there's something about the language that he uses and he sort of quite famously uses language that he grew up with and the sort of colloquialisms that work very well in his version. I think one thing that I'm very aware of is that most people who study Beowulf or, or who've read it a few times come at it with a bit of an agenda and, and I do have a bit of an agenda when I talk about Beowulf because I'm really interested in gender studies and I'm interested in Grendel's mum. I'm interested in the sort of feminist criticism. And so for me, you know, out of the two translations, a clear favourite was always going to be Headley's because it's sort of doing more interesting things with both the female characters, but also that idea of the sort of blurry and interesting line between human and monster. Um, so I would probably be looking to use Headley's and sort of recommend it, not just as a translation of Beowulf, but also just as a really great poem. However, I also would be quite persuaded by using Hamer's too, or certainly passages from it, just for its clarity and its sort of um, poeticness. And, it, and yeah, I think, you know, one thing that I like to sort of talk about with others who, who like Beowulf or conferences is it, sort of the nostalgia of the poem. And I think Hamer gets to that really well. There's a really clear sense of, of them side by side. I mean, you, you bring it out so wonderfully in your review of them, but how they sort of they ask questions of each other these two translations yes and they sort of interact and they're also both something I really loved about reviewing these is that they're both quite personal and I think often people have quite a personal response to great works of literature and both of them in their introductions you know Headley talks about her first encounter with Beowulf being an image of Grendel's mum in a story which explains quite a lot about her translation years later and Hamer says that you know he taught at Oxford for years and he turned to this as a form of relaxation in retirement. And there's something really lovely about those two anecdotes starting the translations with when it's such a weighty, you know, uh, legendary piece of fiction, but also we can have such personal responses to it. Um, well, Hetta House, it's been lovely talking about Beowulf with you. I was going to say it's taken me back, but that makes it sound like, I mean, it's taken me back a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been it's been great hearing about it from you thank you so much thank you it's lovely to talk with you about Beowulf <laughs> bye yeah thank you so much that is all we have time for this week our thanks go to Edmund Gordon and Hetta Howes and posthumously to Vladimir Nabokov of course thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, conservative politician and MP for Tatton, Esther McVeigh, opens up about her early life as a Bernardo's child, becoming a TV presenter, and why she became a politician. There's something very courageous, I think, in a young child, and I think because you're not worn down by battles you've faced and lost you've got the courage to press ahead past imperfect with rachel sylvester and alice thompson esther mcveigh in her own words now available as a podcast listen on the times radio app or wherever you get your podcasts this mother's day treat mom to healthy glowing skin with osea's limited edition skincare sets Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.